Good morning, everyone. We want to welcome you to our class this morning. And there are friends from all over the world, many from India, from Spain, from Mexico, from Russia, and many other countries that we won't name. If you're not from America, raise your hand. <laughs> Thank you for joining us in this World Brotherhood community. Well, we just wanted to start off, Jyotish will begin uh, giving the main part of our talk, then I'll follow, but we wanted to uh, share a little bit of news with, about Swamiji, because I know we're all concerned. He wasn't able to stay for the concert last night. He's doing a little better this morning, and um, it's, I really feel, we asked him, Swami, what do you think is going on? And he said, tapasya, austerity. He's just, for the rest, for all of the Ananda movement, for the work that we'll be launching in Los Angeles, for so many things that he's doing. So yes, it manifests in a physical way, but I think primarily in the lives of great saints, their bodies are really just battlefields between light and darkness. And I think that's what we see going on. And so it's so important to someone, uh, I don't know if Richard Salva is here today, but he had a very good visualization and a way to pray for Swamiji. He said, don't just pray for, uh, see him surrounded in light, but then surround him in a second protective aura. And this is an aura that's composed of all of our love and good wishes for him that he may be impervious to any negative energy, any adverse uh, forces that may, be, that may be coming towards him. So as he walks in the light of God and Guru, he'll be with us throughout during other events, but just add your protective aura and energy around him. And this way we're all united in that wonderful mission that Swami has come in to do. Davy and I are going to talk this morning on raising consciousness, the true agent of change. I thought I'd start a little by giving the kind of global context that we're working with. I want to talk just very briefly about the yugas. I'm not going to talk very long for a couple of reasons. If you have been around Ananda for any length of time, you've already heard quite a bit about the yugas, and I don't want to bore you all. And if you haven't heard about them, Vyasa is going to talk about them this afternoon, and so you can hear about them. So uh, we won't go into it at length this morning. But it sets a context for the times that we're in and for the whole thrust of the week, which is about the global changes that are going on at this point. Part of the reason for the global changes is that the Earth goes through a cycle of 24,000 years. Uh, starting at the top, uh, it's Satya Yuga, and everyone is basically understanding that the world and their place in it and their uh, consciousness is just an expression of God, a time of great harmony, great peace on earth, and great uh, joy and simplicity in living for God. There's a beautiful story. Um, Rama's kingdom is supposed to have been in Satya Yuga. 
There's a beautiful story about uh, one of his counselors was out going around the realm and came back and was giving a report to Rama and saying how beautifully everything was going, how, how harmonious, how lovely. He said, but you know, sir, in one little fishing village, I heard a fishmonger and his wife getting into an argument. And Rama paused and said, that's the beginning of the end of my realm. So just even that little bit of disharmony shows the signs of the beginning of the end of Satya Yuga, or living in truth. Satya means truth. And living in that truth of God's presence all the time. Gradually as that declines, we go into Treta Yuga. And Treta Yuga is a time in of mental energy and great power with, uh, with consciousness, but not necessarily quite as high as Satya Yuga, where one, uh, basically the whole world realizes that we're only agents of God. In Treta Yuga, one begins the ego principle comes a little more strongly into play, and one begins to think that we're doing it. Nonetheless, we're doing it in a much higher way. We do it through mantras, through expression of consciousness, through great power of concentration and mind. Gradually, that begins to decrease. And the techniques of Treta Yuga begin to not be quite so effective in Dwapara Yuga. So we can't, for instance, raise stones by mantras in, in Dwapara Yuga. We can't. Uh, change consciousness. We can't quite be free of the limitations of time in Dwapara Yuga, in Treta Yuga. Uh, we probably are. At any rate, in Dwapara Yuga, which is the age that we're coming into, I'm here talking about the declining cycle of the Yugas, but in Dwapara Yuga, we see everything as energy. And so I'll skip past the declining Dwapara and talk about uh, rising Dwapara since that's what we're in. Since about uh, 200 years ago, 150 years ago, we've entered into Dwapara proper. And you can see the enormous changes that have come in that amount of time. One of the keys of Dwapara Yuga, it's the age of energy, but it's also the age in which we will overcome the delusion of space. And even in little ways, you can pick up a cell phone. I hope you don't do it during class. Pick up a cell phone, hit a speed dial number, and talk to somebody. And you don't know where in the world they are when you're talking with them. In fact, they may be trying to hide where in the world they are when you're talking with them. We heard a charming story because our uh, ashram in India is in Gurgaon, and Gurgaon is a center for a lot of the call centers. Uh, so if you call Texas Instrument or Dell Computer, you are quite likely to get somebody in Gurgaon talking to you. They have uh, classes every morning in, in how to speak with an American accent. <laughs> and they'll prep so that they'll know what the weather is in the various places. So if you're calling from Texas, they'll be able to say, oh yeah, it's hot here in Dallas. 
at any rate, one of our one of our friends was having a kind of a conversation, a, a help for their computer, and so at the end of it, uh, the person on the other end of the line, who sounded like they were in Texas, asked for the name. And our friend said, Nirmala, and said, Oh, Nirmala, I am in Gurgaon. How are you doing? <laughs> and so it's charming, but it's also there's a deeper aspect to it. The, the sense of space is being taken away, and the sense of barriers are being taken away. Right now, we have to practice a little bit our accents and our our English to make it seem like we're all uh, speaking the same language natively. But Master said that one of the things that will happen as we rise in consciousness is that the whole globe will begin to speak the same language. And one of the things in Kali Yuga, which is separate forms, separate uh, separa separation, it's the dark age that we've come through where everything is in form and separated. I like to think of it like if you have uh, a chunk of ice and you crack that ice, you have a whole bunch of ice cubes or ice chips. And that's Kali Yuga because the energy is low the consciousness is low and everything is in form and separated. As energy begins to increase, as consciousness begins to increase, what happens to all those ice cubes and ice chips? They melt. And what happens to their separate individual identities? A little harder to take a piece of water and move it over here and tell it to stay in place. Don't, don't change your religion, don't change your culture, don't change your language, don't, you know, you can't do it. So the world is beginning to meld together. So this rising consciousness is happening on the planet. And that is why this line of avatars have incarnated at this point. Because as we go through these different ages, the way that mankind should act during those ages, especially our relationship to the to God and the Creator, is changed because the same thought forms that were there a thousand years ago are no longer there now. Swami has a, <coughs> as you know, he had uh, he showed you the book yesterday, the Time Tunnel, which is his children's story that he's written. But he has a fascinating. He has many, many fascinating lines in there. But one of the lines that is really fascinating in there is that the two boys and their guide are in Egypt and they see that the pyramids are being built by uh, mental power, by the priests and priestesses chanting mantras and lifting the stones and then moving them into place. And they say, I'm I, I'm surprised. I thought the the uh, pyramids were built by slave labor, and the fascinating line is that no, they weren't built by slave labor, because that's not the way the world was dreaming in those days. Isn't that an interesting concept? That it's like we're all having a group dream, and the context of that dream 
in any given age is a certain way. And it's very, very hard to get outside the matrix of that dream that we happen to be in in any given age. So what we take as being very natural now would be magical to a person of Kali Yuga and stupidity to a person of higher Dwapara Yuga or Treta Yuga. But for us, it seems not only natural, but because we're in a rising consciousness, it seems better and bigger and the epitome of all human thought. But it's not. We will get up to Satya Yuga, which will be the epitome of human thought, where there isn't even an argument among a fishmonger and his wife, and then we'll begin to decline again. And so it goes again and again and again. So this is the world cycle, but for you and me individually, the world cycle isn't exactly as pertinent as it might be. I mean, it might be raining in our Pune community right now, but that doesn't affect the local weather very much. So even if we're in a rising consciousness, don't count on that to get you free. <laughs> First of all, even if you were to hang on to this earth for a while, it would take a very, very long time from here. It'd take another uh, 10,000 years of just progressing along with the earth to get up to high Satya Yuga. But worse than that, um, I mean, it's, it's an obvious strategy. So, <laughs> you know, you just, why do all the hard work? Just get born in the right age, huh? But Swami asked Master if if it worked that way. And Master said, oh no, people don't get born outside of the age of the vibration that their consciousness has. So you come back in, in um, basically in, in the same age that your consciousness has put you in now. Unless, I think we're a special group, I'll come back to that. <laughs> I, I, think, I think we're outside of time and we're sent back from basically higher consciousness into this age in order to be way showers to help move us ahead. So I'll come back to that. Maybe it's just pride on our part, you know, <laughs> pride of group. But nonetheless, you don't get out of it just by hanging around passively because it may seem that you're moving out of it, but as Swami, as Swami asked and Master said, no, you reincarnate in the age that uh, resonates with your vibration. And Swami thought, well, you don't, you don't have a chance to reincarnate. Do you have to wait another 24,000 years to, to reincarnate at, at the same age? And Master caught his thought and he said, no, no, there are many, many planets in this, in this uh, universe. And you just go, you reincarnate when you're ready into the proper environment for your consciousness. And in fact, Master said that you do change uh, around the environment. He said, and this seems always has seemed to me to be kind of mean. He said, otherwise you'd catch on too quickly and you would get out. 
too fast. It seems a kind of, maybe it's because we're in a low age, huh? <laughs> that it seems like a kind of a mean trick that God would make it harder. But I don't know if that's just the way it is. And the bliss has to be greater at the end of that sense of struggle. So we find ourselves in an age that is moving upward into higher consciousness and higher energy. But uh, don't count on that to get you there. Because even if you did, it's kind of like being on a huge merry-go-round. You know, it seems to be headed in the right direction. You're going, you're going, nope, we're turning, we're turning. Oh, no, no, no. And then you're headed the wrong way. And so we can't, we can't have it done for us passively. In fact, there's a very, very deep teaching here. And the teaching is one of the central aspects of the Bhagavad Gita. And that's that mankind, when we come into this stage of mankind in evolutionary uh, rising of consciousness, because we've been born, uh, Master said he remembered back to the time that he was a diamond. So we've had lives as minerals, we've had lives as plants, we've had lives as insects, we've had seven or eight million lifetimes before we even reach the human level. Once we reach the human level, then another a blessing and a curse comes in with that. The blessing is that finally our physiology is such that our nervous system is refined enough for us potentially to become self-realized, to allow the, the uh, enormous flow of consciousness and energy that is necessary for self-realization to take place. And so we have the potential to rise not only to the heights of angels, beyond the heights of angels. The angels are still manifestations, even though subtle, manifestations of an outward reality. In the guise of mankind, we can rise to the point where we're outside, beyond all of creation. So the subtle realms are still part of creation. We can get to the point where Master and these great avatars are, where we're beyond creation. We're united with the Creator. So thinking of it in an analogy that they have often, often used. And for me, it's one of the clearest ways of understanding is that it's all a dream that goes on. The Creator dreams this world into existence. He dreams each of us into existence. And so what good does it really do to change the dream? What good, that's why the master said, the great masters don't come into this world in order to help people clean up their little mud puddles. He, he, they come in in order to get us out of those mud puddles. So they don't respond very much to the prayers if you're a sincere devotee. They don't respond very much to the prayers of fix this or give me a parking place, or those, those kind of petty prayers that are just, uh, as somebody said, mucking around in Maya. We can keep 
that dream state and uh, change the pieces, change the puzzle, change the appearance, but really not make much progress at all. That's not what they're here for. They're here to help us raise consciousness and get out of Maya altogether. And so calling on them, they come into this world and this line of masters have come into this world at this particular time with a great, great mission. And that's to show the whole of mankind how to live properly in this particular age of Dwapara Yuga that we're in. So they came at the changing of the ages from Kali Yuga to Dwapara Yuga. Now, what is the teaching that they brought? First of all, the teaching spiritually is different. The teaching spiritually is that we, through our own efforts and the grace of God, the two in combination, can, can use the intelligence and use the way that we live in order to make spiritual progress and ultimately the goal of all life is to find our essence with God, to find our spiritual, um, our spiritual core and Master called that self-realization. So in past, in Kali Yuga, God seemed to be distant. God seemed to be far away. They've come to change that teaching. The image that, with, that Michelangelo had on the Sistine Chapel of God reaching down and uh, touching mankind, bringing life into him. God as something wholly other and mankind as something different from God. That concept needs to be changed because there is no difference in essence. There is no difference in reality. There's only a difference in vibration or difference in consciousness. And so they came to bring a teaching that allows us to realize not God, but God. Not God outside, but God inside. Not God as something wholly other and wholly different from ourselves, but the fact that we are God, not the ego. The ego isn't God. Master put it this way, the wave can say, I am the ocean. Uh, the wave can't say, I am the ocean, but the ocean can say, I am the wave. So the ocean, God's consciousness, produces every one of us. So we're all like waves on the ocean of manifestation. But each wave, unlike just the waves in the sea or even characters in a dream, each wave, each dream character has the ability through the choice of free will to move closer to God or farther away from God. So that's the curse of mankind is that we have the free will to move away from God. The blessing is that we have the free will to move toward God. So it's all dependent on what choices we make. Now we think that we have more free will than we have. Whether you love God or not love God, that's the basic amount of free will that we have. 
Swami said with the teachings of Master that even down to the choice of the color of the tie that you wear in the morning is determined by your past karma, your past thoughts, and your past habits. So that element in your consciousness that even has those little tiny details is kind of predetermined. But it moves slowly along because they have not taught that everything is predetermined. Otherwise, we just sit back on the merry-go-round, go for the ride, and let God do it all. It's not predetermined. It's this interplay between our choice, our desire, and God's grace. The basic law of the universe, and this, as I say, is a blessing and a curse. The basic law is, if you want it, you get it. Now play with that one a little bit. Huh? You want it, you get it. What desires? What is your consciousness? What Master said that every one of us has a kind of a silent tape that's running in our mind. He called it a silent prayer. <clears throat> so that we might be sitting in meditation, group meditation, doing a chant saying, I want only thee, Lord, I want only thee. And we're thinking in the back of our mind about whether the market is going to go up or down today because I don't know whether I should sell Microsoft and, and buy, I don't know, Google or something, you know. So in the back of our mind, or we've got another prayer going, oh, I wish I could just find that perfect soulmate that I've been looking for. I thought the last four <laughs> might have been that perfect soulmate, but wasn't true. Now, if only I could find, you know, so we've got that silent prayer. We all have silent prayers going. And what are those prayers that we have going? Gradually, we find through a lot of experience and, in fact, a lot of suffering, that whatever that silent prayer is that we have going, if it isn't for God, it does not end up in happiness, doesn't end up in the happiness that we seek. That's why we have those crazy little prayers that go on and on and on. Not because we think that they're stupid, not because we know that something is wrong very clearly. We might have a little vague idea, but some part of us still thinks that if we achieve that goal, it will result in our happiness. And we have to go through lifetime after lifetime. Remember Swami said, some days of Brahma, days and nights of Brahma, we go through lifetime after lifetime chasing a dream, catching the dream, finding that the dream is a nightmare, <laughs> and thinking, well, I better get another dream. And we, <laughs> and we do that. And a lot of times it's just variations on a theme. You know, it's, well, if that wasn't the perfect mate, then I'll find another one that is the perfect mate. Or that wasn't the perfect environment. I'll find another one and on and on. So we have those variations on a theme that we chase over and over again. So we just have to go through a lot 
of lifetimes and a lot of disappointments until we get to the point where the prayer in the back of our mind resonates with the thrust for freedom that will truly be there. So the prayer in the back of our mind needs to sound something like, I want only thee, Lord. If we're chanting it with our tongue, then we need to chant that with our mind and with our soul and with our whole vibration. So gradually we work on that. But it takes a long time. One time Davy and I were in a shopping mall in Sacramento with Swami, and I can't remember what the key was, but we were walking down the, you know, down the central core of the mall, and Swami said, essentially, you know, sometimes people say how wonderful it is that you've been able to do this or you've been able to accomplish that, and they feel that they aren't capable of doing it. He said, they have to realize that I am exactly like everybody else. I've maybe just been at it a little while longer. And so all of us, that's why I say all of us here, I think are a special group, because I think all of us have been at it a while longer than the typical vibrational platform that we find ourselves in. That's why I, I'm sure that, I know it's true for me, I assume it's true for you, you feel like you don't quite fit in this world. That this world isn't quite made for the particular sensitivities that you have. In fact, I know it's got to be true, otherwise you wouldn't be here. <laughs> so, so we all feel that, but in fact we feel it not just in a passive way, because a lot of people feel that the world isn't quite satisfying to them, but we feel it in an active way because we have this great line of gurus and their grace behind us, which makes us not passive, not hoping somebody else will do something about the problems, but ready to take up the challenge and the responsibility of creating an alternative reality that is out of time, out of place a little bit, but shows where mankind can go if they want to. That's one of the reasons for the spiritual community movement that Master was so adamant in producing. I want to talk a little bit about the factors that come in to help each of us change our own particular vibration. How, how do, setting aside the world, let them chase the dreams that they're dreaming, let them run after what they're running after, setting them aside, what about us? What about you and me and where we find ourselves? We're already connected with a line of great masters. How do we raise our consciousness? How do we get out of delusion? How do we get into the state of self-realization? There are a few things that are very helpful along the path. The first is that we need to watch very carefully our environment. If you're trying to 
get out of delusion, it does not help that process to keep drinking toxic potions of delusion all the time. So begin to look at who you're associating with. Again, that's the reason for cooperative communities. If indeed you want to find God, why not live or associate with others who want to find God? Now, not everyone is karmically free to live in a community. I want to mention something that we're trying to do as an experiment, and I want to really urge everyone here to help us join in with this. We're creating a virtual Ananda community, and that's what we call it, Ananda virtual community. And we're trying through the internet to replicate the experience of being in community. The experience of being in community primarily is the association on a daily basis with other truth seekers and with those activities that help that. So we have morning and afternoon sadhana that you can tune into in your own home. We have classes. This is this class, in fact, is being broadcast as I speak to Ananda virtual community members. So wherever you live, you could tie into this. Um, we are having things like cooking classes. Uh, anyway, I won't go on. If you're interested, uh, Melody, Dharma Devi, and Narayan can talk to you about it and how to sign up. But I don't want to dwell on that. What I do want to dwell on is the principle that environment is an incredibly powerful force in our life. And so if you want to change your consciousness, associate primarily with others who have the same consciousness that you're trying to get to. If you don't do that, the, the power of magnetism of thought will dissipate what you're wanting to do. There are a few people who are extremely strong and stubborn and can be in any environment and still thrive. But as Ramakrishna put it, if you peel onions, your hands are going to smell like onions. So even if you're strong, you will be somehow affected by the environment. So first of all, if you want to raise your consciousness, associate with others who have raised their consciousness and who are still trying to raise their consciousness even more because that is an extremely powerful influencer on your own efforts. The next thing is that we have to work more to replace the thoughts of the random mind with thoughts of God. There's a charming story that a spiritual teacher told or example. He said that when the mahouts, the elephant trainers, would drive, would ride their elephants through a village, the elephant, being the powerful creature that it would, would just grab bananas here and fruits there and vegetables there and create absolute havoc as it went through the streets of the village. 
And so what they did was to take a piece of bamboo about that long, have the elephant hold it aloft with its trunk and proudly carry that through the streets of the village, thereby keeping it out of trouble and keeping them from being stoned, I guess, or fruited in this case. <laughs> but what that was was a teaching about the mind. If you allow the mind, which is much more powerful than an elephant, if you allow it to run loose, it gets into mischief. I don't need to dwell on that. You know what I'm talking about. And so you need to give it a little chunk of bamboo to dwell on. What is that chunk of bamboo? One shape of that bamboo is constant chanting, japa as it's called in Sanskrit, to keep in your mind a mantra going all of the time. What's a good mantra? I asked Swami that because uh, some of my friends, when I was getting on the path early on, uh, had gone and they'd gotten these long mantras to repeat. And um, I kind of wanted my own personal mantra that went on and on. So I asked Swami. He said, Om Guru, that's all the mantra you need. So keep in your mind Om Guru. But the words... The words are the least powerful level of chanting Om Guru or doing mantra. If all you're doing is repeating the words and still thinking about Microsoft in the background of your mind, it doesn't do you very much good. Nonetheless, it does some good. Think of it this way, that when you're in a house and there's Om Guru playing on the stereo, that's a whole lot better than a lot of other things that could be playing on the stereo, right? You still may be going about your own business, but even if you're not even conscious of it, it's still a powerful technique. One of the reasons that we have a friend who uh, spent many, many years with Ananda Moy Ma, and one of Ma's main teachings is uh, the repetition of God's name, as Swami was talking about yesterday. Uh, repetition of God's name. And she said, repeating God's name, especially doing it consciously, is like pouring boiling water down a snake hole. She said, at first, all the snakes will come out. <laughs> so you keep doing that. And uh, some people may find I don't know, upset or anger or things like that. There will be resistance. Your ego will resist that pouring of the boiling water down the snake hole. But keep doing it. Keep doing it over and over and over again. And gradually it begins to drive out of your mind those thoughts that pull you downward. Here we're talking about how to raise consciousness. We have elements that pull consciousness down and elements that raise it up. This is one of those elements that not only raises consciousness, but suppresses the tendency of the mind to go into uh, negative thoughts. The same kind of thing as the remembrance of God in any way. So chanting is one way. Thinking of Master and his eyes and walking, having him walk by your side if you can 
Get that concept in your mind and keep repeating it over and over. It becomes extremely powerful. I'm going to end talking about attunement. But Master said that if you want to attune yourself to any saint, he said it isn't enough just to think about them once in a while. He said meditate powerfully with deep concentration for many days at a time on that saint, especially visualizing their eyes and drawing their consciousness into you. Consciously draw their vibration and attunement into your mind. And that then, if you do that with enough power and enough magnetism, you will find that the vibration of that saint will come in and begin to affect your consciousness. God is a silent guide. Master is a silent guide that is always there potentially for us. As Master said, for those who think me near, I will be near. So think Master near or think God near. I read something uh, just a couple of months ago by a great Christian mystic and saint, Frank Laubach, and he called it a game with minutes. And what he did was he challenged a congregation. This was during a, during a church service. Challenged the congregation during the hour-long service to think of God at least once each minute during that service. And he had people write down on a piece of paper how well they did with that little exercise. And it went all the way from no thought whatsoever about God during that time. Somebody had to be honest to write that down. To, to some who thought about God every minute, at least once every minute during that hour-long service. But he said, try to do that periodically, to get it uh, even five minutes at a time or a little bit longer, ten minutes at a time. Challenge yourself to bring your mind back to God at least once a minute during that time. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to do those activities that change the conscious flow of our thoughts from just mischief or worldly uh, misdirections or even just kind of random thoughts. Not like, I don't know, thinking about a project is is bad at all. We have to do that. But if that's our only diet, it doesn't lead us toward to self-realization. We have to keep awakening ourselves to that. So there are a whole variety of practices. Holding your mind very powerfully at the spiritual eye. Master said that's one of the fastest methods of growth of all. All of these different methods help us raise our consciousness and stay in the presence of God. It's very, very important to do that. But I want to conclude with um, just before I left to come, I asked Master, prayed to Master, uh, to give me something to say. I prayed desperately with that one. <laughs> to give me something to say and opened the autobiography randomly. And I came upon the passage where he was talking about Lahiri Mahashaya 
said that the solution to everything in the world, to everyone's problems, is Kriya Yoga. And that that's what this group of masters most specifically and most deeply brought was the science of Kriya Yoga and that which goes with it. And then it went on to say that we don't have to change our outer uh, relationship to God. He said, let Muslims go down on their knees and pray to, toward Mecca four times a day. Let Hindus pray to their God four times a day. Let Christians pray to Jesus four times a day. They don't need to change that, but the practice of Kriya Yoga will change them. The most powerful thing of all is to get in attunement with Master or with your chosen guru, your chosen line that has incarnated and reached out to you with the power of God, the grace of God, to bring you back. See, you are not different from God. You are God just in sleeping form. And the connection with the guru, he comes into this dream world in order to awaken us back to our true reality. So we don't have to change in order to find God. We have to get back to that which is our core essence, and that's where God dwells. And Kriya Yoga withdraws the energy and uplifts the energy to the higher centers that allows us to remember who and what we, who we are and where we came from and where we dwell. So practice Kriya Yoga. Master said that a single practice of Kriya Yoga is worth a year of living. I just wrote a little blog on this. Uh, if you're interested and if you're a Kriya Bond, you can go and read it. But the mathematics is pretty simple. Imagine this, that if you do, if, what's a normal lifetime? 84 years, 85 years nowadays? So it's not hard to do 85 Kriyas a day. A single meditation gives you an entire life of, of normal living. You do that for 365 days, you got 365 lifetimes that you don't have to reincarnate. Do that for 40 or 50 years, you got like 25,000 lifetimes that you don't have to reincarnate. As I ended, say, I said, tell me another better labor-saving device <laughs> and I'll take it up. So if you got Kriya, practice it, do it more, do it more deeply, and live the life according to the core of that teaching and the core of attunement with Master. And if we do that, we will change our own consciousness and because we have grouped together and we have the grace of Master and this line of gurus behind us, we have the potential not only to change our own individual consciousness, but the great, great blessing to help at the same time provide an example and a model that will uplift world consciousness and move the lives of millions and millions of people into a better place pretty good lifetime to be in.